Hello, comedy geeks, comedy nerds, friends of the funny. I'm Mike George. And I'm Masavia Greer. And then today on Comedy Anatomy, we have the funny DC Benny. DC Benny is a staple in the New York comedy scene. He was last seen on Night Train with Wyatt Cenac and Leslie Jones's Supermarket Sweep, also produced by his friend and ours, Lenny Marcus. Now enjoy our conversation with DC Benny. DC Benny in the house. What's happening, man? Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> How you guys doing? Good, DC. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. A young DC, a baby DC, pre-comedy. What made you pursue it versus all the other things in the world you could do? Well, I grew up in a house of artists, you know, so it would be in my house. It was not normal to like become a an accountant or a lawyer or a dentist or any of that stuff. It was just like we grew up. So my dad was a painter. My mother was a dancer. I got taken to foreign movies when I was a kid, like Truffaut and Fellini and Kurosawa movies and everything. So I was like, I grew up in a kind of alternate universe, you know, grew up on welfare. And then we moved to like a middle-class neighborhood, but we were the only people with food stamps, you know? And it was just a, from a, a really young age, I was surrounded by art and creativity and their artist friends would come over and that kind of creativity figured into stuff. It's really interesting because I've lived in LA for a long time and a lot of friends I have whose parents were artists or actors, they go way the other way because they see the reality of that life. Well, I didn't know better, first of all. I mean, if I knew what I knew now about how hard showbiz is, I, I might've taken a different approach. Being a comedian, being a creative person, there's a price you pay where when you're you know, trying to make a living. It's not an easy life, but it's like mm -hmm. you're compelled to do it. I feel like the one thing I have in common with most comedians is like we're compelled to do this thing. Once you try it and once it's like you connect with that audience and get that laughter. It gives you something. Yeah, something. you get something, mm -hmm. they get something. And and there's this kind of, it's kind of like you did a little deal together that worked really well for everybody. And how do you, now how do you sustain that? How do you continue right. to have that experience? How do you continue to give that experience? The real challenge always seems to come back to the comparison of it all, right? Where you're always comparing yourself to others and things like that. Do you find yeah, that's part think, of it? I think there's a, uh, there's definitely a part of that. I mean, I think that's a natural thing in any, right. in any profession and, and the, and the show business, you know, the, the comedy business is in, in many, many ways, completely irrational and had, and in many ways has nothing to do with being funny, which is, I wish no, I, right? I, I mean, I, I agree with you on that one, Benny. I, I do. <laughs> it goes, it goes beyond that. <laughs> you mean like, you mean like success has nothing to do with being funny, or just? I mean, being a being considered a successful comedian by the rest of the world or the people that consume comedy, the audience, a known commodity. It's almost, it's almost just being funny really doesn't have much to do with getting you to a place where you're visible. It can, it can. And every once in a while, like I'll see somebody funny that actually is making strides and getting to a, a place where they're getting right. known. And I'm so happy for them. I'm so happy. You know, th there's a responsibility. Uh, and you want somebody good as an example uh, of that. And, and, and so many times it's not. And then that's what people consume. It's like they get this fast food comedy. So when you first started, did you start in DC then? I started in DC. I was at uh, University of Maryland. And then I started uh, doing like DC local clubs. And then I saw that there was, uh, I guess Dave Chappelle had left 
uh, DC. You know, we, I saw him. You know, Tony Woods was very encouraging, a, a great DC comedian, but probably one of my favorites to watch, if not the favorite. I, I sort of steeped myself in that community. And then I was like, New York is the place. I had always wanted to go to New York anyway. My dad's from Brooklyn. He grew up in New York. And I always knew I was going to end up there. So right. I'm like, let me just jumpstart this. That's the Mecca. That's where I got to go. And I ended up moving New York. Wasn't able to get on anywhere. And then Tony Woods told me about the Uptown Comedy Club in Harlem. And I was sort of a novelty there. I got on every weekend because I was a white guy in a, in a, in a black a crowd, black room, black audience, black comedians, and I was the white guy. And um, Benny, I always thought you were black. <laughs> I just, I just want you to know, I, yeah, I never how, considered you a white guy. <laughs> how did you navigate that? Because in D.C., there, there was a uh, a black comedy club called the Comedy Connection in Greenbelt. Yeah, the Comedy Connection. Yes, and I would go there. That was sort of really the before I did like Garvin's and all these other places. I would go there. I, I was like, I bombed there really terribly one night. Like it, it took me about six months to get on stage again. I, I, I <laughs> Apparently <laughs> when you bomb, say at Uptown, you, they're not giving you a gentle quiet, like you bomb. No, I get booed off. When I say bomb, you get booed <laughs> off. Right. You know, by the whole fucking room. No, you get, you get booed off and then there's like lights and sirens. It's like the Apollo. It's like, I'll go back to the Uptown. There was a guy named Flex who used to host there. I remember Flex. Yeah, as I, I went there and I went to work, you know, I, I crushed it. I, I came there and I learned like, this is what you gotta do. And I'm, you know, I don't wanna get booed off. And he had a cousin that would come every week with his friends to boo me, you know, to try to get oh my the booed. So that's how I learned really crowd work and how to smash when people right. start heckling you. Right. That Marine boot camp. Cause that I'm like, this motherfucker's coming in here, bringing his friends, sitting in the back, waiting till I go on. But it was so valuable to me. It ended up being just really turning a negative into a positive. I, you know, will always be grateful to the Uptown Comedy Club for giving me stage time. None of these mainstream rooms, when I came to New York from DC, they're like, I couldn't get on. I'm going up to Harlem, there's packed rooms. I'm, I'm, I'm learning my craft. What do you think it was about you that had the resilience? Look, I think anybody coming up at that time, I can't say that I was more resilient than anybody. It's just that when you hear the laughter, you know you're doing something right. That is the validation. So you know that you just have to persevere. You've got to put yourself in the position that that can be put out there and you do it wherever you can until you can. So I was doing, you know, I did, I opened for bands. I did bars on the Lower East Side. I did like these alt rooms, these, uh, you know, surf reality. I think you have to be resilient if you're pursuing something you love. I love comedy. You know, I loved the, it, it was like I had to do it at all costs. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not so much at all costs, but back then it was, you know, whatever, you know, you take a bullet for it. Did having creative parents have advice? I mean, because it's great. They were obviously supportive, right? They, they were supportive. They were supportive. But, you know, like, <laughs> my friend still teases me about this. The night I was leaving DC, my mom got drunk and she came upstairs to my room and knocked on the door. And uh, I guess I had thought things were gonna be a little easier. Like in my head, maybe I was talking about it. Like, I'm gonna go to New York, I'll get on stage, blah, 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 blah. And she looked at me and she's like, you gonna suffer. You gonna <laughs> suffer. Like, <laughs> the night before I was leaving. 
It was so, and I was like, why would you say that? And then I realized, yeah, you, you, if you choose this as a job, she was kind of warning me in her own way as a, as somebody, as an artist, you know, it's, it's not easy. Is she Southern? She had a yeah, Southern thing. <laughs> 18th century Southern. So they, but they were, they were very almost, supportive besides that, you know? Right. Very, but it, I, it sounds more realistic supportive versus, uh, we believe in you and follow your dream. It's more like, look, man, this is a hard road, but if you want to do it, we're, we're there for you. They just, you know, I think my dad now feels a little guilt about how difficult this career, you know, has been and that he didn't sort of give me some guidance about like, hey, maybe find another sort of backup thing that you will help bring in, uh, you know, sort of a financial stream when times, you know, as it goes up, up and down, yes. you know, during the downs. But I don't think, because they were, you know, they were all in it. So they were like, get in it, commit, go do it. Keep your overhead low. You're gonna you're gonna suffer, and uh, you know do what you love. So with the the chosen career of comedy, don't you think it has its moments where you have highs and lows, but it can keep it it can sustain you enough. I think so. It's just the financial lows can be really really rough when you know the work dries up periodically. Mm-hmm. When you're making a living just from comedy, you're gonna have to take these you're going to have to take shit gigs at times that it's like they do more damage to you than the mm-hmm. money that you get help. And, and it's, a, it's a common thing in this business and, mm-hmm. and <laughs> where somebody gets into a position of power and they lose their mind because there's so many comedians coming at them. Hey, but can I get work? Can I get work? And these guys lose their mind. You know, they lose kind of their humanity and how to deal with people, how to treat people. So you become uh, in that sense, victimized, and I hate to use that word because we're all adults, right. you know, you choose what you want to do, but you, if you participate and you have to, because you're trying to make a living, it can be, it's it, th- those type of people that you have to deal with who don't treat, uh, you know, comedians well. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes. It, it, it does take, it takes a toll with one after another, after another, after another, after another, you know, no names need to be mentioned. No, but totally. But is it, is it the, uh, the person in charge or hiring for the gig? Is it the gig itself? Cause obviously you're talking about psychically beyond just creatively. I, I think certainly the, a lot of the people in charge there, look, there's good people out there that, as well, but then a lot of the people in charge, they get kind of corrupted by the power, you know, and it, it the power of being in charge, the power of, being the gatekeeper. The gatekeepers very rarely are, you know, empathic people. <laughs> and that's, that's an understatement, but, uh, right. and the, you know, the, the, the gigs itself, look, part of it is you're going to do the shit gigs or you do the great ones. You'll do these great ones where you're in a hotel, a five-star hotel in Dubai. And everybody's like, you know, you get a standing ovation the second you walk out there and it's like, Oh my God, this is great all the time. You're getting you know, X amount of dollars, it's like four times what you normally get. And then there are these ones where you're just, you know, they'll do in a little room out in Jersey and uh, nobody's paying attention and whatever. That's part of the balance. But I think right. that more damaging is, you know, having to maintain your mm-hmm. self-esteem and your perspective as a performer, uh, as a human being, when you're not really being treated like a human being. Sure. And, you know, and, and the, the one thing I always say is like, when I see one of these guys who's really nice to me, but then I see them treat a new guy 
like shit, I make a mental note that that's somebody I don't want to deal with. Cause that could be me that they're treating like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, so that part of the business, because there's so many people you have to deal with so many bookers, so many gatekeepers, so many, that is a part that does take a toll. I, I think. No, I think that's really uh, honest and, and, and true. I mean, especially when they look at performers as product. Benny, you said it correctly. It's like, from what it looks, when you look at it on stage and you see the finished product, they, they, you're funny as shit, right? People are looking at you. But what it takes to get there, it's like, fuck, you know, I don't know how you do it. You just wish somebody, <laughs> wish somebody had schooled me a little bit on the way up about that aspect of things so I could mentally prepare a little better. But you learn. I mean, you're thrown right. out in the battlefield and you learn. And, and it's just, you have to look at it like it's, this is not a battle. This is a war. This is like a long <laughs> extended war where people are like, when is this war? When is there going to be peace again? You got to, to maintain, you just have to learn how to take these shots. You know, you're doing, this isn't a fucking amateur fight. This is like 15 round old school jacket. How do you keep your joy in that, Benny? How do you, how do you say, I still. <laughs> laughs, man, the laughs. And you know what? Nothing, you know, I can't think of really, anything that makes me happier than when a new bit works that I'm trying out. And, and yeah. I can't think of anything, you know, on a creative level or in a, uh, th that feeling when something new works and you have this new piece that you're playing with and the audience is loving it and right. whatever is, uh, uh, man, I you just forget about all that other shit for a little bit, you know? Does that still for you now will have the same pull it, it did when you started or does it, as it evolved and changed? You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a different person than when I started. And so comedy for me is now, it's a little bit of a different place in my life. I still, that's still an amazing feeling. I sort of try to get, I try to balance things a little bit more. I used to, I had my life built around comedy and now there's my life and comedy's kind of fitting into it. And I think that's what's gonna allow me to keep going with right being isn't that healthier though does that not feel yeah, healthier it feels, better. it feels a lot better I, I feel better than i have in you know uh, weirdly enough during covid uh having a break from everything and then kind of reassessing stuff was really healthy it, it gave me a chance to really kind of reassess my life and say i got to figure out comedy's got to fit into it now it's been right. all about it you know right. and uh, i i was i've been so committed i remember Patrice, uh, who I had a very kind of contentious relationship with, Patrice O'Neill, uh, before he died, we were, you know, we were sitting in my car one night after a gig, I was dropping him by the path train. And he's like, you know what, man, you, you know, the reason you're not more successful, he's like, you, you, you give a fuck, you care too much, you got to stop giving a fuck. And I'm like, well, that's easy for you to say, or whatever. But in a way, he was right, you know, in a way, I really cared too much about every little aspect mm -hmm. and if I had pulled back a little bit I think that would have been a healthier thing but I wasn't able to do that and sure. at that moment now, at that time and you can't force that learning to let go learning to let go is not something you can say oh I'm going to do that tomorrow like you just it comes when it comes man but you're working now you're working on supermarket sweep right now with Leslie Jones and uh I am so Lenny Marcus. To, as I as I've heard I'm supposed to do the next season and, uh, you know, we're, I guess they're still working out all this stuff, but uh, I'm supposed to go back. And I just did a, 
Amy Schumer has a show that she's doing and I got the, I got a call to, you know, come on and do a part on there. So I just got back from doing that. And, you know, it was like a nice little, a nice little thing that came out of nowhere. And so was the other thing, you know, I got a, I got a call from this friend, Lenny Marcus. He's like, yeah, you know, Leslie, uh, we've been thinking about you for doing this part of Supermarket Suisse, the game show. It's the last thing I ever thought I would do. <laughs> you didn't have that in your vision board. You want to. <laughs> last thing I ever thought I'd do, but it was, it was cool because I could work with people who are really light, who were kind of advocating for me. I mean, there was a point where, with supermarket sweep the previous people who were they they run a business okay they run a business why do they want a 53 year old guy being <laughs> being a uh you know a um whatever manager of the rest of, of, of the supermarket on the show that's a game show and they leslie got a little resistance and Lenny, her right-hand guy, was dealing with it. And they were like, you know, DC Betty's really great and everything. We love him so much. Maybe just think. And Lenny was like, Leslie's not asking. And they were like, okay. <laughs> 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 and then, nobody ever does that. You know, nobody right. ever. Ha to, to have some, an advocate in your corner for something like that. Had that just been me dealing with somebody, which has happened 8 million times. I mean, don't you think uh, you've, put in enough uh, coins in the uh, in the slot and time that people have respect and they know what you can do. I think, I think I'd, I'd like to think within the comedy community, people who know what I can do, you know, who know the, who know the deal. And uh, which is why, like when I teach my classes, I teach comedic storytelling, I teach, you know, basic comedy technique and stuff. There's 8 million guys that teach classes, but if you look at them, a lot of them haven't done anything. You know, they work at one club, they've been doing it 10 minutes, now they're teaching classes. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. But I do it in because, you know, I wish there was something like that when I was starting, you right. know, and I really, I really do help people with it. I like to pass along what I've learned, you know, to people. And, uh, and yeah, I feel like I've made my bones in this business. I've certainly made my bones, but don't know what that amounts to in terms of economics. Uh, but I do get a fair amount of respect within the community. You know, with the industry, oh, yeah, I mean, eh, the industry, I don't know. You know, industry, we love you. We're big fans. Uh, what do we do with you? I don't know. But the community. When you talked about the difficulty of some of the industry people and, and that, how much is having a good balance with other comedians and having that rapport and that connection in the community? How important is that? Look, another thing that I... I wish I would have learned growing up is, you know, having alliances within your community, you know, it's, it's, it's essential having your crew. I was always kind of a loner because I was married the entire, pretty much my entire career. So I would go home to my wife. I didn't really hang out. You know, I hung out when I hung out, people made a joke out of it. They're like, Oh shit, what is happening? <laughs> After eight o'clock, you know what I mean? People would make a joke out of it because I just, I just, I'm boring like that. I would go home. I'd be with my wife. I'd come out and do comedy. That was it. I have to say that, you know, just like the Leslie Jones thing, you know, it's Leslie and Lenny thought of me from us working together. I did a tour with her in, uh, in the Netherlands or, or whatever. That could have been anybody, you know, the, to be cast in there, but we got along. Uh, ben Bailey, you know, a friend that's on, you know, Cash Cab has brought me in on things that he's done you know, various people that I've known over the years. And had I been out there, and I've seen, there's so many comedians who have careers 
because some headliner took them under their wing and they hung on there and you know sucked on the titty <laughs> of the headliner <laughs> you know what I mean? that's a that's a way people do things and i just never it never really occurred to me to latch on to somebody like that that was many people have done that and profited from it or whatever it just didn't really occur to me i couldn't first of all i couldn't commit time wise it was always with me. see it as political though did you always see it as political the the uh the inside of was doing those things i mean listen are you going to hang out with that person if they're not famous you know are you going to hang out with ex-comedian if they're not famous and putting you on or whatever and, and laugh at all their jokes and do all that kind of stuff. Probably not, you know? If you are, then that's something, you know? Then that's, if you really, you guys vibe together and you hang, you know, like I see, I see uh, Dean Edwards always puts on Harris Stanton it, because they're friends, you know? They're two dudes, they love being around each other and that's right. a, a really healthy thing. But then, you know, there's guys that just kind of like the headline, latching onto the headliner is the way to start a career. And that is, uh, and it's a, it's a very viable way to do that. And it's never been a I thing. I always found it done. strange, Benny. I always found that really. Uh, we have to, put, you pay a price for that because mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times those guys are really high maintenance and yeah. you got to go and, and, you know, carry the, you know, like P Diddy, the dude with the umbrella walking on the beach that's holding the umbrella that's you <laughs> you know what's so true because it so can be demeaning and i i don't know maybe maybe you actually like it maybe you're like yeah i get to hold the umbrella for diddy but i i we've can't been, we've been talking about this a yeah, lot talk about yeah we have been a lot talking about this we have been because we're seeing it a lot and it's you, really it's really kind of exploded it used to be kind of a little more low-key but now there's a and i'm not going to say a generation because i don't want to put this on younger people there's an element of the comedic society that has figured out, okay, I need to just latch on to somebody and who right. am I going to latch on to? And then you right. got to, you know, you're the, you're the piss boy, you know, you, you, you <laughs> what's the piss boy? You got all the bucket. Okay. <laughs> Crazy stuff that they do. Man. You know the piss I mean? boy. You see it and you can see the desperation and the high status of the, famous person and then the low status of whoever it is holding the piss bucket. Yeah. And I think that there's no price to me. And no. I'm sure you'd agree worth it no. for being the piss well, that, bucket boy. And that's exactly what we're saying. Like, I want the younger comics to hear what you're saying, Benny. When I see in you, Benny, you paid your own way. You did it by yourself. You did it. You have people that you connect with, but it was really genuine. You know, it's never been uh, you You need this person to get to where you need to go. So you have to play this game. It right. really is a mindset. And I've always been like, let me reach out amongst my peers who are who I'm cool with and try and collaborate on things. And mm -hmm. so I've always done that, you know, like write a little pilot and shoot that or, you know, sketches or this or that. And that's that's always been a great thing to do. And then, you know, every once in a while, listen, you call in a favor. I've called in a favor to comics who I knew that were, you know, that I came up with and then they blow up and, 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 you know, some of them can't, they suddenly can't take your call. A small favor. Hey man, <laughs> could you plug my, could you just plug this uh, for me real, you know, real quick, my special or whatever. Yeah. Uh, can't, you can't, can't take the call. Can't. Sorry, busy. Get, get to talk to the umbrella guy. You got to talk to the yeah, talk, <laughs> talk to the piss bucket guy. Talk to the guy who's covered in urine. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one thing you were saying. I'm reflecting back to an earlier part of our conversation where you said, you know, maybe you should have gotten a 
I don't know, we were saying a gig, a day job, something for, for the financial, but we've now done about 25 episodes of this. And what I've got over and over again was the fact that you can't be half pregnant. It seems like if you're going to do this at the level that you're doing it at and that we have on the show doing it at, you can't have a day job. This is a life choice. Do you feel that's fair? I feel in retrospect, look, when I started this, when I came to New York, I had a day job. And then the work started coming in so much, I got rid of it. And then the work slows and it doesn't, it's not necessarily a day job, but I think I'm going to go against what the status quo is where it's like half pregnant. I think that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is the power to say no. And if you have, if you have an alternate stream of income, it doesn't have to be a nine to five. It could be just like a little side hustle. But if you have a little side hustle, you can say no to some shit gigs because, mm -hmm. you know, your rent is due, your mortgage is due, whatever, you got bills, blah, blah, having to take that shit gig and, and feel bad about the money that you're getting paid when you know, you know they're screwing you on it. I feel like that does more damage. And, and this is a long game. The long game is to survive in this and not be emotionally traumatized, you know, to be able to think clearly, to be able to write your bits, to be able to you know, get your stage time to be able to persevere. And I think if you have a little side hustle that brings in some some cash, uh, so you can, you know, the guy calls with the shit gig. Yeah, I'm going to give you $200, no hotel, eight hour drive, bring your own opener. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right, right, you know right. Mean? You end up spending 300. Hey, fuck yourself, buddy. And that, yeah. feels, that feels fantastic, you know? Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. If you have a little side hustle, sure, but if it overtakes your life. Well, I do think there is a distinction. I mean, listen, to do anything well, you got to be all in. I think the side hustle is the key or several mm. of them. Be, you know, you know, master P it, you know, do, you know, have, right. have various, have your little juice thing on the side, have your this, have your that. I think that is a much healthier way. It, it, when you're talking about a whole other career, that's your nine to five, which is never nine to five, then, then it becomes detrimental to your comedy. But I think there's such a mindset where you have to make 100% of your income from being on stage. And there's so many unfair rules that you're gonna have to deal with, uh, with, with that business. You're better off having, being like, I'll make yeah. as much as I can. I'm gonna spend as much time writing as I can, getting on stage. But if right. I got a little something coming in, I'm, and it's not from stand-up per se. Maybe I sell, maybe I sell toasters on the corner from three to five or whatever it is. That th there's no shame in that. And I think Absolutely. there's people in this community that there is shame in that. There is shame yeah. in, that, sure. in, in, the, in the in the side hustle. And I think I think embrace the side hustle. Bring it on. It's you could you're going to last longer. You're going to outlive the guys that when the colleges dry up or when the corporates aren't happening or when this isn't happening, you know, when the clubs are like, yeah, you're not really selling, you're not really selling seats, not really selling seats, you know, it's a, there's the lulls in this business. You go up and down, you're hot, you're not hot, you're hot, you're not hot, you know, whatever. You're absolutely right. Side hustle makes sense to me. It's only, I guess, when it becomes, it takes over, you know, the side hustle becomes it. Yeah. Your toaster business on the corner now has a store and then you have three stores and now you just run, you sell toasters, you know? I definitely wouldn't ever say to anybody, no, man, you got to be a purist. That's, that's bullshit. And I certainly felt like I had to be a purist. When you were first able to make a living doing solely stand-up, you want to continue that. You know, when I first quit my job selling suits at Armani, uh, you know, in 90, what, 94? 
four, something like that. You know, I was so happy to be out of there and being able to, you know, I'm booking commercials, I'm on doing colleges, of, you know, I'll get a little part in a pilot, this or that. But then, you know, there's a lull, which comes later where, you know, colleges maybe dry up a little bit, uh, you know, maybe you're not so suited for cruise ship work, you know, maybe, you know, the clubs, like you're not in that pocket mm-hmm. where of, of, you're not in that rotation in, in the clubs right. on the road where you're making that road money or whatever, you don't have, you lose your agent or something like, you know, so you're on your, you know, you're knocking on the door with 8 million other guys and it's, it's stressful and a gig gets canceled or this gig, you're counting on that money. That stuff is really, you can't really know it until it happens. And then you're like, okay, you, you got to figure out some kind of plan. Right. So, but I do think, yeah, it's really hard to do two time consuming careers. The comedy's the most consuming, all consuming thing. And to have another thing where you've got to, you know, you're essentially on call and this and that. I, I sold real estate, gotten really sporadic for me. So I, I said, okay, I'm gonna stay in the city do spots, do shows in the city, and I'll sell real estate during the day. That seems pretty flexible. God damn, that was a, that was a brutal career. That was a brutal, Around it took so much. And it was, you know, I was good at it. And I sort of set up things for later, but I got out of that. It, it, it took too much from my comedy. Another career where you're dealing with people uh, who are about to make a huge decision in their life, uh, and and therefore they it can put them in an irrational state of mind. So you're doing a lot of hand holding and a lot of uh, mental augmentation, you know, sanity. It's a similar thing. It's like I had a little departure, but I always kept doing stand up. But I got a lot of flack for that. I got a lot of people saying, "Oh man, you're now you're a real estate salesman." I'm like, "No, I'm a comedian who happens to do that because I'm trying to plan for the future. I see the writing on the wall. You know, I'm in. I'm, you know, about at the time I was nearing fifty. And the phone wasn't ringing off the hook. I'm like, let me see how I can position for a, for a comeback. Sure. But I need to put sure. food on the table. And it, it, it worked out enough. You know, it worked. I got what I needed from it. Now, you know. No, but I think a lot of comedians need to hear that. And up and coming comedians need to hear that. There's no particular way to do it. I think mm-hmm. is there's a hundred different ways as long as you find your way. I was going to ask you this question, DC. What do you think about management today? In many ways, managers are not a necessary component of a comedy career. It's like they might grease a few hinges, but ultimately you do, and I can't say it about all management, that would not be fair. But the vast majority is, you know, they grease a few hinges, but you're doing you're doing the work. As the performer, you're doing the work. This is what I found. I've, I've had a fair amount of managers over the years, you know, and they've they're all known guys and they're, you know, good managers. I think really, if you're at a Louis CK level or something, you're going to have kind of a different relationship with your manager because your schedule is so crazy. You need somebody to actually manage that and your flights and this and that, whatever. So there is kind of a, a legitimate purpose that person can have. I know personally that everything I've gotten was not because of a manager in my, in my career. It's not every TV show every, you know, managers was, they may differ, they may take credit, but really it was because of relationships I had and me pushing, pushing through. And then they sort of finessed it. And I find that is across, this happens all the time. Someone just emailed me. It was like, 
oh, I love my new manager. You know, they're pushing my album, everything. I'm like, give it a, let's just give it a couple of weeks. Take it easy. Give it a couple of weeks. <laughs> Within in under a month, they got back to me like, how the fuck do I get out of this contract? How do I get out of this contract? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, I mean, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming because it starts mm. off hot and then it kind of, you know, and I don't want to disparage the profession of managers. You know, there, there are some, I just feel like some guys will have a relationship, a personal relationship with a manager where they're almost buddies and, they, and, and it kind of transcends the, uh, the definition of, of the manager client. You know, I think Gary Shandling may have had that with Bernie Brillstein or, so, you know, guys like that, but in general, as a young comic and an up and coming guy and even a, a mid-level guy or even a established headliner, I don't know that you need that. You know, they need you. You don't really need them. They need right. you for their roster to attract other comedians that they can commission. What, what are they really gonna do for you? You know, they're go they wanna get a producer credit on, on your show that you get. Occasionally you'll get some good advice from managers. A lot of times you'll get terrible advice, you know, about, what you should do. And uh, I think it's really a, a case by case. Mm -hmm. I think if you're a young comic and you're looking at a manager and there's a guy wooing you, you know, you know, trying to get you to, to work with them, don't sign anything. You don't need to do a handshake because then you're both, you know, anybody can kind of leave at any time if, if the services are not being provided and uh, it keeps everybody on their toes and specifically say, this is what I need. And if you're not getting that, if the doors aren't being open for you, I mean, you, you're going to do that on your own. You, that, you know, you have to create yourself into an undeniable force in this business. Uh, and so really the management is superfluous. I, I, I was thinking along the same lines of, and, and me and Mike had this conversation, in fact, with Lenny Marcus, Right. Oh, so, so yeah, I don't know if you know this. Lenny doesn't like managers. Just wondering. <laughs> He's a little more straight down the middle on that answer. You <laughs> know, as a as a comic, you really have to create yourself into a business entity that's self-contained. Mm -hmm. You're 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 self-promoting. You're building your own following. That is something that I never really knew. That I wish I'd known is build a following. Because once you build a following, none of the other shit matters. Mm -hmm. You don't need a manager. You don't need an agent. You get yourself an attorney. You got a following. You're good to go. Right. You know, you, you can sell out venues without, you don't have to deal. The, you're, you're a commodity and the work will come to you. But that it sound, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but that's the thing to strive for rather than focus on, oh, I need a manager, you know, oh, I need an, an, an agent or I need, you need yeah. to build a following is what you need to do. When you start, you want all the trappings. You want the manager and the agent and the people who are flying you out for testing for pilots and all these things. But the truth is, if you're much more grounded and, you're, and you think exactly what you just said, I'm going to build my following. I'm going to do it my way. That is the truly empowered way to build a career that is not up to a gatekeeper the same way. Not up to a gate. You eliminate the gatekeeper. And then you also create a longevity because mm -hmm. now you have uh, you have a, 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 a marketplace to who, of consumers, of people who appreciate what you're doing. And you can be like, hey, here's my new special that I shot myself. Here's my new, you know, here's right. some new sketches or this or that, or I'll be appearing here, blah, 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 blah. And it could be a, you know, it could be a bar, 
It could be, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a comedy club. They're all just boxes with chairs in them and a mic and a stage. So, you know, the more, I, I wish I had known more about self-empowerment as uh, in, in this business, but I was all, you know, I want to get the manager. I want to get the agent. And look, I've had agents that have done, you know, have gotten me things or put me in position to get things that I couldn't have gotten it in position to do that. But the way to do it is to build your following, build your mm -hmm. own business. You don't need them. Yeah. So, uh, oh, man. Hey, hey, Benny, man, it's been a pleasure, brother. I and, um, and listen, if I can plug anything, I would love for people to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That would yes, be, you got it. I put, yes, I put up uh, my stories on there. I've got all these stories that I just like, they're not quite ready for stage, but you get to see the kind of raw material. And I talk a lot about this shit. and they're, they're funnier than, look, you see how we have this conversation. I didn't say very much funny shit during this last hour, but you know what I mean? The stories are <laughs> What's your YouTube handle? Uh, it's, oh God, it's just DC Benny. If you go to DC, DC Benny, Benny okay. YouTube channel, it'll pop DC up. Benny channel, I would so appreciate if uh, people uh, subscribe and check out the, uh, the uh, they're called adult bedtime stories. And I tell a lot of stories about from being a comedian over 33 years and uh, stuff like that, then, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I stumbled on doing that in, during COVID and I'm just going to keep doing it. I love, I love doing it. So. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome you know, man. To, uh, gentlemen, it was a pleasure. All right, All right you guys, take care. it was a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Right, man. You too, man. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Okay, Mo, let them know how they can support us. Make sure to subscribe to Comedy Anatomy and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Comedy Anatomy and on Twitter at Comedy underscore Anatomy.